Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests. Today, I am very pleased to have with us Richard Yao, the COO of the not-for-profit Bronx Parent Housing Network and attorney Juan Restrepo. We'll be talking about a very interesting subject, transitional housing. These are the buildings that are dedicated to be a supportive short-term home for the homeless until a more suitable permanent residence is arranged. Richard, Juan, thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have both of you here. Uh, why don't you guys tell me a little bit about uh, your backgrounds, each one of you. Richard. Sure, Bill. I'll start by talking about how I came into this type line of work. I started you know, out of the college. I graduated from Yale with a BA in economics and went into the finance world, working for MasterCard International American Express. And then later on, I merged into the fields of economic development and government services. Uh, I worked in leadership positions uh, for the local governments of New Haven and Bridgeport, where I started falling in love doing work with the community and helping the community and people who are in need. So I'd, uh, I went back to school and I got an MBA in healthcare with Baruch and the Zicklin School Management in partnership with Mount Sinai. Uh, using that, I worked with a lot of nonprofits in New York City, particularly uh, over the last 10 years or so. And some of the agencies I work with uh, include the likes of National Association on Drug Abuse Problems, uh, the Fitzgerald House that deals with veterans housing, Urban Health Plan, FQHC, a federally qualified health center, uh, a number of other agencies in the areas of uh, housing, healthcare, and, uh, and supportive services. So that got me into where I am today, you know, leading into different agencies. I'm working now as the chief operating officer uh, for Bronx Parent Housing, uh, which requires, you know, all the expertise I've gained over the years from private sector in financing to public sector and government services and in the nonprofit growing consultatively. Uh, so that's sort of uh, who I am and what I do. Wow, that's great. Very illustrious background. Uh, Juan, how about yourself? Thank you, Bill. I went to St. John's University School of Law. I have over 10 years of experience working in the real estate sector. Primarily, I started working in the landlord-tenant field and real estate litigation fields. From there, I moved on to the previous law firm, dealing also in the same realm of real property litigation, construction litigation, some transaction matters, commercial leasing. And since then, I opened my own law firm about a year ago, focusing along the same areas, but also now in the, the fields of community development, economic development, construction uh, and development in general real estate matters, along with the real property litigation and commercial leasing. Very glad to have you both here. I'm very excited about what we're going to be talking about today, which is transitional housing, which is really not a subject that's talked a lot about in the investment real estate world. But w once I sat down with the two of you and I had a better understanding of it, I realized that this is something we really need to talk about on Realty Speak. Richard, please tell our listeners exactly what transitional housing is, uh, you, because they may not understand. I know I didn't. And when I first sat down with you, my idea of this was a shelter big open room that had a lot of beds and facilities for people to go to if they were hungry or it was too cold outside. And when I found out after sitting down with both you and Juan, this is actually not the case. Please explain to our listeners exactly what transitional housing is and where does the housing come from? It is not catering to sort of lay public. You know, when people think about transitional housing, let's say I ask a college student, what is transitional housing? I'll say, well, I'm cr crashing on my friend's couch. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in the context of public uh, infrastructure, talking about programs that help people and specific people who are in a housing situation where they do not have permanent uh, housing, where they are transitioning from situation of homelessness 
always they're in need of some kind of housing to stabilize their living situation. From a public infrastructure and public program standpoint, transitional housing it's housing that is provided to people who apply to a public agency, whether it be in the city or state domains or certain counties who oversee this. In New York City, obviously, this is the Department of Homeless Services, which people can apply to and obtain transitional housing. And these are housing units that are managed by various operators, primarily not-for-profit agencies, and they provide the short-term or mid-term housing, and those terminology tend to have different meanings. Short-term can be anything from 30 days to uh, 60 or 90 days. Mid-term can mean up to a year or even two years. There isn't a defined duration for transitional housing. It depends on the type of program, the people that are served, and the outcomes of those programs. So it could have various durations. So transitional housing covers all of those type of situations. So you talked about an operator. Bronx Parent Housing Network, which you're the COO, is one of those operators. Is that correct? That's correct. And they're a not-for-profit? Yes, that's correct. What do they operate? Do they operate their own buildings? Do they operate someone else's buildings? How does that work? We operate transitional programs in the context of the short-term emergency housing, such as emergency hotels that cater to people who are immediate needing overnight and very short-term housing, to transitional programs that require certain services on site. So we operate those by contracting with the city funding sources at various locations uh, for designated types of populations, whether it be uh, families with children, for example, people who are adult couples, or single individuals coming from the city's referral system. Bronx Parent Housing do provide those kinds of housing, and we operate them through leases, long-term leases with landlords. We do not own the buildings. We lease them, and we operate those programs on behalf of contracts with city government. So this is an opportunity for landlords with the residential buildings to lease them to an operator like Bronx Parent Housing Network, then you operate it and they don't have to worry about the building anymore and they are receiving, I guess, a monthly rent as a result of this lease. That's the ideal situation for any landlord, I think, because if they own a building and they don't know what to do with it, they want to have uh, a continuous source of stable income and they negotiate a lease with some agency like us, they get one tenant check, which is from us once a month, which is pretty much guaranteed by a government funding source. It's a mutual beneficial relationship between the operator nonprofit and the, and the landlord and the benefit to the city government because they're looking for buildings like this. Richard, what type of properties do you generally deal with? Are these more like two or three family uh, dwellings or more than six units? Or are we talking about 30 units, 40 units in a building? Are these usually older buildings or newer buildings, new construction? What are you dealing with? Juan, thanks for asking. For Bronx Parent Housing Network, right now our portfolio and our target on buildings is whole buildings, generally 30, 40 plus units of housing that will cater to people who are homeless uh, in terms of the programs we serve. But in general speaking, and in the future too, and currently, there is a strategy for us as well as in the world of transitional housing that units that are what we call scatter site, uh, individual apartments in buildings that are available can also serve as a resource to deal with the situation of homelessness. Uh, We call that scatter site programming. Potentially, a landlord with multiple buildings with a couple of units that are available in each building can put together a program with an operator like us. Uh, And every program is very different. Uh, Our portfolio now do tend to work with larger buildings because that is the need that deals with the critical situation of homelessness now in the city of New York. Do you you have any scatter sites in in the portfolio? We don't personally, uh, but we do oversee a master program, master contract that does uh, work with the operators that operate these scatter site programs. Uh, For our own portfolio, we do not manage that right now. Homelessness is a problem and a challenge, not just in New York City, but in many communities all over the world, uh, certainly in the United States. Do you have some statistics on homelessness? And with that, could you also tell our listeners, what is homelessness? Are there different categories of homelessness? 
Let's start there. There are different categories, homelessness. When people talk about homelessness, a lot of just you know, typical uh, lay people would look at, who's not in this industry, would look at homelessness, people who are sleeping on the streets. The, the guy returning as a veteran with a dog, you know, on the side of the street with a little cardboard saying, I'm homeless, I'm a veteran. You know, you see that every day when you walk by New York City streets. That's one form of homelessness, the street homelessness. But homelessness is much broader and bigger than that. People who have a situation like a fire, for example, their buildings burned down. Where do they go? A lot, some of these people may not have local uh, resources, so they would need transitional emergency housing. That is a form of temporary homelessness that people have. There are people who have mental illness, who are on the streets. They don't even show their faces. They may be hiding under a little nooky corner under the subways. You never see them. There is quite a number of those. Uh, then we call those people who are in that kind of situation, not just from mental illness, health, health, but because of substance abuse or because of, uh, of disabilities, they end up in a chronic situation of homelessness, so we call it chronic homelessness. But the majority of homelessness, about 80% of those, do fall into some transitional phase. Uh, they lost their jobs. They went through a domestic violence situation. They exit a hospital, there's no place to go to. So they transition back from that situation into transitional housing. Does that include people that also are exiting the correction system? It does, actually. Uh, people who do come out of the correction system do have focused transitional programs that help them. Both the state and the city work together to create those kinds of programs. And there are operators that focus on those. Bill, it also includes actually people that... Uh uh, actively employed, you know, like you and me, they're making maybe minimum wage, and because of the situation, affordable situation in New York City, they cannot afford to pay New York City rents. Uh, people that cannot afford to move out of New York City or that they don't have experience uh, living anywhere else, you know, that maybe they grew up in New York City and, and, you know, they're afraid to explore other areas and, and decide to stay in New York City while not earning enough money to pay the rent. Actually, Juan, you bring up a really interesting fact. The biggest contributor to homelessness in New York City is lack of affordable housing. That's very weird. For people to think about homelessness, is is not just mental health, disability, or momentary situation, or domestic violence, or mental health, or that sort of thing. But actually, the availability of affordable housing units in this city is the reason why a lot of people are transitioning in these homeless situations. They can't find affordable housing. Let me uh, give some stats. In New York City, 2018 has been the, by far one of the high points in homelessness. That's not a good thing to say, you know, that the, the, in the history of homelessness, right now we're in the worst situation ever. There's over 60,000 people on any given day living in the homeless units managed by these operators we're talking about. And this last year, you know, the city reported over 120,000 people have gone through the, the homeless uh, situation being housed in a shelter transitional program funded by the city. And what's really sad to know is about a third of these are children. And they are with their family members. They are transitioning because of situations where their parent lost a job uh, and they can't find affordable housing. Uh, that's where we are today, and the city is in, in a mode where they need to create these transitional housing uh, catered to particularly families with children in this crisis situation. What are some of the opportunities for landlords with existing housing stock and developers that are interested in developing around this concept? For developers, obviously, you know, having land and accessing capital and, and building up a building for particular use, there is a strong partnership, a, th a triple partnership between the developer, the nonprofit operator, and the city to work together and come up with a solution to help address this homeless crisis now. Developers certainly should be one of the key uh, interested parties to come to either the city or the nonprofit operator with a idea in mind. Well, I got this land and I want to help you. What do I do? And the typical process is a nonprofit like us would work with the local developer with the land and discuss with them what uh, their interests are in terms of the type of building they're going to build. 
and what are the needs that we can address with their building. And we work out a concept together and then we take it to the city. If they're interested, at that point, we formalize that into a business agreement and we formalize with some kind of application to the city to, to vet that project. There's a lot of hurdles that a project needs to get through. And I'm sure Juan later can talk a bit about sort of those kind of community sign-offs, planning sign-offs, but there's various hurdles, both from the community, the public, and the government agencies at large. No, for, for a developer, uh, Richard, uh, you obviously have the incentive uh, of uh, getting uh, public monies, right? Usually managed through uh, HPD, New York City Housing Preservation and Development. Certainly they have a couple of programs. The New York Supportive Housing Loan Program offers different incentives for building buildings where a percentage of the units must be dedicated to uh, transitional housing, uh, which it, it, with the intent of uh, those units either transition out of transitional housing and becoming permanent, permanent housing in a more affordable basis, which is not really the topic of of this uh, of this discussion today. In addition to maybe a combination of tax credits uh, through the state or city levels. So for a developer, definitely the incentive will be in building. Generally, what I see is to partner with a non-for-profit who will be operating to be more hands-off, a non-for-profit that's already vetted, has experience with the city, uh, who can manage these type of projects and receive or maybe triple net uh, the building entirely or the portion of the building to this non-for-profit and getting a substantial return back in, in terms of the rent while the non-for-profit is getting the majority of the funding through the city agency. Richard, you would describe to me a project where the entire building was leased by Bronx Parent Housing Network. It was a new build, correct? Yes. Yeah, and how long did that project take? This one that I won't name specific addresses, obviously, but uh, you know, this one example that you talked about, it took about two years from the moment the landlord came to us and said, this is what we want to do. We're building it. Um, would you like to take over this building when we finish? Actually, it's less than two years, about a year and a half. I'm looking into all the way back to when the building was planned out. From that discussion, uh, going through the hurdles that we just talked about, and then working out the budgets, the leasing, it took about a year and a half. The bulk of the work actually was in the last six months. Uh, seeing this building going up on the skylines, you can actually see it being built every day, going to check it out, walkthroughs and so forth. Meanwhile, we're working out the kinks of, well, what does the lease look like? We discuss the, the terms of the lease. We work with the city to ensure these rents, we agree, are approvable and that the city has vetted through their various approvals for those numbers because ultimately the, the project needs to be sustainable financially. So once we have that cleared, we work with the city agencies in developing the staffing plan, the various unit counts and what each unit will be catered to the type of population that will be served, design a program in terms of the service model and the various needs, even including how trash is being picked up. What does the trash route look like? How often is the trash being picked up? How is food being served and, and addressed? And what are the nutritional values of each of the meals? And we get into very micro details. So there's a lot of planning getting involved in during that uh, year and a half. What's the difference between, you know, typical affordable housing, market rate housing, and this transitional housing in terms of the way it's laid out and occupied? You asked that question, Bill, as if there is one template for a shelter. There isn't. It's like you're asking, what does a senior housing look like or assisted housing look like? It, it's different. Depends on what kind of population this program will serve and, and the zoning for that building and how it's built, the how many stories. Every building is different. And every project is uniquely designed with this one example I brought up, a year and a half of planning involved, both on the design side in development side and on the programmatic side, what kind of people will be going into these apartments and rooms? How will they be used? Is it going to be individual apartments or share room scenario? Those are all open to discussion and vetted by the funding agencies. I can give an example. A typical shelter, let's say for a family with children, is an apartment with, say, two bedrooms in it. 
and this shelter has 40 of these apartments. So this is a large building, like say seven or eight, bu- eight, eight floors high with 40 apartments that have one to two bedrooms. And depending on the size of family, a family couple, husband and wife with a child may go into a one bedroom uh, or two bedroom, depending on availability. Uh, the type of population certainly is designed with the initial planning stage of who will be served and how many will be served against the unit counts and the makeup of those types of units. So there isn't one specific template for what these shelters will look like. Uh, they could have various forms and looks and tastes. It depends on, again, the agreement between the landlord and the operator who they want to have in their building it, that does play into the decision. And what does the city need? Uh, in that location and what are their critical uh, mass needs now in terms of homeless uh, uh, issues. And then we are in the middle to try to triage that. And then we come up with the solution that everyone agrees to. So Richard, you also have different types of arrangements, right? A lot of times the developer or the owner of the land or an existing building may want to do something else. So let's say there you have zoning issues or classifications that's more towards the construction uh, side of things. You have uh, uh, New York City approvals. Maybe you have to go through ULERP uh, approvals. So you have to go through the, the first year process uh, of New York City. Uh, it needs to be vetted by city council, different things. That's more on the development side of things. When you have an existing building and just doing a major renovation, you don't have a lot of those huddles, right? You just do an internal or something. You just hire a general contractor and you do the work and you do the major re- renovation. But in terms of what Richard is talking about uh, as to getting a non-for-profit provider to operate a shelter, at that building, you may have to go through just the regular city processing in having a shelter contract approved. That's more community board comment. There's a, an interplay here also with the local representative, the local community and politics. So that covers the landowner, a would-be developer with vacant land, building something in which the use will be specific to this transitional housing program. What about existing housing stock. Landlords that own buildings that may become vacant over a period of time or have market rate tenants that when their leases end, they can keep the unit vacant. What about housing stock like that? And then also tell me a little bit about buildings that have rent stabilized or rent control tenants in them and maybe the inability to use that housing stock as transitional housing. I've actually went through scenarios of developing programs in those two types of housing, existing housing stock where the entire building is vacant and the landlord wants to renovate it for a specific use. And then the other alternative where there's a few units occupied by rent control tenants and the other are open to various uses. Starting with the whole building, existing stock, it works very similar to a brand new building. You just need to get through the discussion of the three partners, the city agency, the landlord and their use, and the nonprofit operator in developing the program and decide on the base on the location, the size of the building and the unit counts and the makeup and the specific needs of the city agencies, where, where are the priorities in that area, where are the priorities in terms of, uh, of the current housing homeless situation, uh, and then the nonprofit and their, our expertise, uh, where do we fall in that, and then come up with a program that fits everyone. And there's always a way to find a solution. On the other end, it's a little tricky when there is some of the population in the building already involving some other form of rental assistance program and you try to fit in an, another type of transitional program in there, it does happen and, and it does happen regularly. I mean, it's not just about the city, it's about city and uh, it's about state, county and federal funding as well. Uh, different operators access funding and, and program uh, resources to support the transitional program in these units that are not fully in a whole building. So it, there's different types of uh, expertise that are needed for that. So Bill, you actually just raised uh, something that is actually point of controversy and is, is very recent. Last year in the city of New York, Mayor de Blasio announced uh, with respect to the cluster units in New York City to start phasing out of this cluster system and all those units that were located in or either entire buildings that were either rent stabilized 
or units that were containing that rent sta- stabilized buildings to that were rented out to the cluster uh, non for profits operators to uh, to start being registered against uh, as rent stabilized units. Uh, it's a little bit unclear whether if those units were vacant at the moment that they're required to be registered or they were occupied, whether or not they would be exempt from rent stabilization. Definitely the buildings that were rent stabilized and they're vacant that they need to re-register as rent stabilized, I think the answer is a little bit easier. Then those units will go back into rent stabilization, right? For example, have an entire building whose rent stabilized that was leased out to a non-for-profit entity for the New York City cluster system. And now they're uh, it's still occupied because it's very difficult to get an entire building uh, vacant, right? A non-for-profit evicted from one of these, um, or transitioned out out of one of these buildings. The occupants themselves do not have a direct lease with the building. This has been litigation that was commenced. I forget whether it was the legal aid or legal services in New York who had commenced a legal action to claim that these occupants were entitled to the protections of rent stabilization and therefore the landlord would need to give a direct rent stabilized lease to these occupants. I just read an article uh, in October 2018 related to that lawsuit. They just sided with the with the city of New York saying that these units uh, that are still occupied do not fall within the ambit of rent stabilization. And I believe that decision is being appealed or will be appealed. So this is still kind of in the gray area, is is still being litigated and in the appellate process. So let me understand this. This is a building that was 100% leased so let's call it a double or triple net lease to a not-for-profit agency to be used as transitional housing. The occupants of that building are people that needed those services. And then the agency that had leased the building from the landlord was exiting out of that agreement. And now the people that were in the building said that they should benefit from rent stabilization laws. Correct. And and the court actually did not side with them. Correct. But you say it's it's going into appeal. So there's a little bit of a um, uncertainty around this in terms of, you know, what the outcome will be down the road. 100% correct. If that building was 100% market rent before it was leased to the agency by the landlord, would that change things? I think it will. I mean, my opinion is that yes, um, because then it's not subject to rent stabilization to begin with. Right. right. So it just so it was a building that was subject to rent stabilization prior to this agreement with the agency and the landlord. Actually, that brings up another point. The units that are typically rented out to non-for-profit operators, they get referrals from the city of New York. People out of the shelter system come into these units through a referral of the city of New York, and they do not enjoy the same uh, benefits of, of a regular tenant. Right, because they don't have a lease directly with the landlord. Correct, uh, but there's an interplay of different laws in New York City. For instance, uh, most people are aware that if you occupy a unit for more than 30 days in New York City, then you're considered to have tenancy rights. So that, that complicates things a little bit. In a rent-stabilized building, if the unit, if the building was rent-stabilized, was rent-stabilized but is leasing out to a non-for-profit entity for the unit's use for non-for-profit purposes then it is an exemption to rent stabilization. It becomes exempt from rent stabilization until that unit is vacated. Here, that's exactly what's happening. If the unit is vacant, I think it's clear that it will go back to rent stabilization, but a lot of these units are still being occupied, right? And, and these, these uh, occupants, or let's call them guests or whatnot, they're still there. So how do you treat these people in, that are still occupying these units, but they don't have an actual lease and... The city just cited saying that they don't enjoy the benefits. Uh, the, the, the court, I will say, just cited with the city stating that they don't enjoy the benefits of being an actual tenant, right? They're more like licensees. So the licensee or the guest of that apartment moves out and it becomes vacant and was previously rent stabilized, then the rent stabilization would flow through to any new regular tenant, I guess. Correct. But the individual that's there now doesn't enjoy that benefit because they have a completely different relationship with the building, the apartment, the landlord, and so forth. Correct. Very interesting. It's still up in the air, and let's see what comes up of, uh, of potential appeal. All right, great.
Hey folks, just going to take a quick break here and share with you that episode 14 is the part one you are listening to and a very special bonus part two that will be released in a few days. Part two will explore the roots of Bronx Parent Housing Network and the remarkable story of the personal transformation that took place for Victor Rivera, the CEO of BPHN. Homelessness is a crisis that stems from many different circumstances, and from the outside, those circumstances may seem insurmountable. Victor's personal journey from someone who actually was in this situation at one time in his life to where he stands today is a testament to what is possible when one makes a choice, exercises discipline, and pursues a mission filled with passion to create positive change for others. It is not to be missed. So let's get back to Richard and Juan to finish up episode 14, part one, and keep an eye out for part two in a few days. Well, that all sounds great for the landlords, and it sounds great for the non-for-profit, and of course, the people that are using the transitional services. But I'd like to know, Juan, Richard, what are some of the nuances around negotiating leases? Who pays what? What happens when things go up? I understand there's really no real estate tax benefit for anybody in in this particular situation, which is not like there is when you develop something in a 421A program where a portion or all of the building is affordable housing. Talk to me a little bit about that. There's certainly uh, benefits to doing transitional housing and, and to working with a non-for-profit provider that is kind of uh, guaranteeing the rent payment to the landlord at a stable rate than if you were getting uh, through the regular market. Uh, and this is because you're getting a non-for-profit basically paying for all the units at once and that rent being guaranteed or being paid by the city. Uh, so you have a more steady cash flow, a steady flow of rents coming in. Uh, but on the downside, and in terms of you know negotiating the leases and what you could expect from from some of these arrangements, obviously uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that it's not a quick process. It usually takes months. We've been in situations working with uh, BPHN that is taking us eight to nine months to try to close out negotiations alone. So if you have a building that is sitting vacant, uh, right, and we're going through this process for eight or nine months, you're losing out on the rents for that time period, that could be one drawback. The second thing that comes up to mind is that in this type of arrangements, we're usually dealing, dealing with uh, triple net leases or double net leases. And what that means is that the, the tenant takes all, all the operating expenses, real estate taxes and insurance costs and pay, you know, those costs are passed through to the tenant. And historically, you know, when you work with a non-for-profit entity in the transitional housing sphere, the housing or the non-for-profit entity will submit that cost to the city and obviously maybe with a, uh, with a markup, right, for the operation of the of place and then the city will pay it. Uh, that's changing relatively. And so the city is not blindly signing a check these days. There's a lot more regulation, now, more oversight and more transparency. And I think Richard could talk about it. And so not all of the costs that are associated with a building would necessarily be passed through to the non-for-profit provided. And the, the landlord may end up having to pay for some of those operational costs. The, the third thing that comes up to mind is that when you're negotiating these leases, the, the, the landlord, the building owner needs to understand that ultimately, even though you do have a signed lease, it's subject to the city contract approval. When we do negotiate one of these leases, it's typically a provision that says the operator will take over and let's say in, in, a, in the event of new construction, the commencement date of that lease will be the date that the project is substantially completed with all the proper permits and temporary certificate of occupancy. So the agency could move in and start putting you know, occupants in there, but the city contract will get approved sometime later. And it goes through different levels of approval, first through the agency, then it needs to get signed by the city controller's office, filed, 
And that time frame typically is you know, 90 or more days. So for the first 90 or more days, uh, the landlord would typically not be receiving any rent. And a lot of landlords do not like that, right? They have to cover the cost for the first couple of months of the lease. Now, there is a program where the, the not-for-profit provider could apply for a bridge loan to cover some of those costs in the meantime, but that's also a separate process. So Richard, do, do you have something to say? Yes, I think, you know, you hit on a lot of those points. The upside, obviously, is the ability income to the landlord. Uh, the, there are downsides, too, particularly in the beginning phase of a project like this for transitional housing. Let's use the city shelter uh, transitional housing program as an example, that there are going to be the first three to six months, generally speaking, might take some time to get the cash flow in, in terms of through uh, budget approval process, contract process, before, you know, money is exchanged from the operator nonprofit to the landlord. And the landlord needs to have the understanding that needs to come. Now, there are stipulations in every lease is different, depends on how, what the stomach they have, how long they want to take that, uh, the landlord, uh, then they will put that into the lease. Uh, so there are different ways to do that. Of course, different nonprofit organizations have different tools they have. For example, with us, we have a line of credit that's sizable. We can manage cash flow. That will essentially we help front front the city uh, until those city funding comes through. And there are times where we need to uh, escalate to the city about specific project why it's delayed. The city is a bureaucratic system, and they have to go through their approval process. Believe personally that in the last 24 months, the city has significantly improved in their ability to cross between various departments, from programs to financials to the Department of Budgets and planning that approves these budgets, and then the sign-offs from the controller's office. So there's a process there, and I think they're streamlining it. There's a lot more transparency, and there's a lot more sort of partnership between the landlord nonprofit and the city. Everyone sees there's a huge crisis out there, and we got to make this work. I don't think, you know, personally that the city is trying to keep money from the nonprofit, nonprofit is keeping money from the landlord. No one's doing that. But the reality is it takes time to improve on a system that's been out there for a long time that is going through changes like putting new clothes on. And they're used to some old clothes they don't want to get rid of. So that's kind of where we are today, the way I see it in terms of transitional housing in the city and funding. I just thought about something else while Richard was talking, potentially another drawback. Um, I'm calling it drawbacks only because obviously it's an issue of economics and the market. And so what could be a drawback is not necessarily bad, right? You just need to adjust to it, right? It is an adjustment. It's not a bad investment. And so let's not try to turn people away from, from doing transitional housing, especially landlords or developers. But these are some of the things that they need to consider. And Richard just touched upon that. There is a lot of city oversight. The agency, DHS, has a lot of oversights of the non-for-profit and the building. At any given point, uh, the city could come in and inspect the building and basically terminate the city contract with the agency if it's a bad operator. And what happens if the city contract is terminated? So there's usually cross, we call it cross default provisions where the city could basically come in and take over right, and place another operator in there. But that transition period is usually very messy. When I say terminate the city contract, they stop funding it. And if the agency, the not-for-profit, is not being funded, and the rent is not getting paid, right? So during that transition period, if the city is not making the direct payments to the landlord, which I, I don't think that, that happens often, and the landlord is holding the bag, right? So it, it's definitely another thing to consider. It doesn't happen often, but there, there has been situations where you have non-experienced, non-vetted, non-for-profit operators that are doing this, right, and they're falling in trouble. And I think there's various examples of that where BPHN actually has taken over other operators to try to turn some, some of these buildings around. So I have two questions around that point that you just made. What's the typical term for these leases between the not-for-profit and the landlord? Typically 20 years. And you usually have two, three, or four renewal options. 20 years. So once you put your housing stock into this program, that's pretty much where it's going to stay. It's long term. And that actually also talks about something else to consider. It's a misconception. A lot of people think about transitional housing, like you said, about the shelter, people coming on the streets, walking down the, the sidewalks, throwing garbage in front of the building, doing graffiti. People associate shelters with maybe 
a community that is experiencing distress such as poverty, lack of housing stock, extreme rent burden, I mean, that's not necessarily the case. We have shelters located all throughout New York City in different neighborhoods of different income levels and different zones. Now, with that said, a lot of landlords still have that misconception and they think when they're bringing a shelter in, it's going to diminish the character or the quality of the building. And if you have a long-term lease for 20, 30 years with this type of occupancy, they may think that the, the value of the building is going to diminish instead of increasing, which I think is a misconception. Uh, they're not thinking in terms of the, you know, the income that they're going to be getting, uh, you know, almost guaranteed for a long-term period of time and the hands-off approach, but they're thinking about the losing the equity on the project because it's being occupied by uh, as a shelter. I personally don't think that's the case, but you have that misconception out there. Well, my second question around that point was, and you've answered the first one, 20 years with options. My second question is, if you have the bad operator and the city terminates the contract and stops funding the not-for-profit because they're basically being removed from the agreement and they're going to put another agency in there, another not-for-profit rather in there, uh, is there a way that the landlord can then say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Vacate my building, give it back to me. And now we're really getting into the difficult portion of it, which is, you know, how do how do you vacate a 40-unit building? All the people there are in the shelter system. Well, yeah. this is transitional housing, right? It's not like they're living there permanently. They can go to another transitional housing. It's extremely difficult. It's discouraged taking 40 people to court, even if as licensees will, will be, you know, in my experience in housing court, typically not less than six months per tenant or per occupant, you know, to, for those issues to be resolved. So you usually go with the road of less resistance and have a, a, somebody else take over that shelter. So it's, it's not a, a straight answer. It's very difficult. Do you know of a situation where this happened and the landlord said, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me my building back. So I can talk a little bit about that because we actually did go into two situations where we helped the city and the landlord take over op failing operators. Again, think about the three partners in this situation to deal with a homeless crisis. The issue is you got individuals living in these buildings who are considered homeless or at risk of homeless. So the city has designated this building, work with them to develop a program there. And then the operator is operating. And then you got an operator failing. What happens next? The other two partners are still there, the city and the landlord. So they better talk. They are going to come up with a solution. And the solution generally is, I mean, you got to get into contracts and procurement for the city. So the city is going to go out there and say, well, we have an emergency situation here with this building or these buildings and operated by this, this nonprofit that's failing now. I need uh, folks out there, other nonprofits to raise their hands who wants to take this one over. But it has to go through a, a fair public process. And I don't want to get too deep into that, but essentially they're procurement rules. And uh, nonprofits apply for that. For example, we did. And we were able to obtain a couple of these buildings that we wanted to uh, oversee. And the city agreed to that. And we work with the landlord. The landlord now is back to an intact relationship. So that's the best situation that can come out. There are times when the landlord says, you know, I don't really like this. This is taking too long to get paid. And I don't care whoever is going to come in. It could come back again. I don't want to deal with this at all. It's a difficult situation for that for a landlord because they don't have a contract directly with the city. They had it with the operator that's failing. So they will put themselves in a bind where they now potentially, like Kwanzaa, sue 40 tenants to be victim. And then they're in a black hole. What are the rules that guy with these individuals that are in a transitional program? So they have every wherewithal to work with the city to, to solve that problem. And the city, you know, will not does not uh, have an incentive to keep them in the dark because they have to deal with that crisis of those people living there. So there is a mutual benefit for both of them to talk and resolve the situation, whether or not there will be a new operator in there. How many buildings is BPHN, Bronx Parent Housing Network, operating at this time? We have a good 15 plus buildings. Uh, I said plus because we also oversee a master contract that have other buildings that we, we manage others doing this kind of work. But we have buildings that are from the emergency side, dealing with hotels all the way through to 
transitional shelters that are just uh, uh, brand new buildings that we work with the landlord and the city to vet this for, like I said, a year and a half to get a project in place. Uh, we've done this over the last uh, 17 years now uh, with much of the current buildings that we operate coming online the last three years, particularly because the city has a significant need to deal with the crisis of homelessness. And there aren't as many experienced operators as there should be out there in, uh, in New York City. We've talked about the benefits and the possible challenges around this for existing housing stock, developing transitional housing, the agency, Department of Homeless Services. We've talked about the operator being the not-for-profit agency as BPHN is, and we've talked about the long-term commitment that everybody is making with the operation of the site. Have you had any experience around one of these sites then being put up for sale where someone else is buying it? You bring up a very timely topic, actually. It happened to us recently, literally in a week ago. We have a site that we oversee, and the landlord sold it to another owner, and we don't need to be in that equation of decision and discussion. We actually just find out about it. Right, because you're the you're the tenant. We're the tenant, and, and the new landlord is subject to that lease. Is that correct? That's correct. And any smart landlord will, of course, look into their lease to do that to have that kind of provision to protect themselves if they want to sell it to a new landlord. What that lease is then transferable, assignable, and you know, Juan can throw all those terminologies to us. But that is the situation we, we did. And, and it's a very smooth transition. Nothing happens because the lease puts the relationship intact. And the new owner of the building obviously knew exactly what they were purchasing. Correct. There's an interesting situation also, another type of arrangement. And I think we didn't talk about this was a, a sub-lease situation. They say what they where BPHN doesn't have a direct lease with the landlord, but they have a sublease. And, and that creates a little bit more challenges because then you have to have different documents that protects the non-for-profit from being their, their sublease being terminated in the event, like for instance, there's a new entry coming in, a successor either through foreclosure or through a sale, right? In a sale situation, typically, yes, all those contracts are assigned, but in a foreclosure situation, uh, a lot of those contracts are canceled. They're terminated. And so how do you deal with that? That goes now into the nuances of foreclosure and what does the judgment of foreclosure, who does it cover, who doesn't cover. I, I personally have not had to deal with that situation in my career, my experience, but it could happen, right? Uh, so I could tell you right now uh, from experience, uh, you know, in a sublease situation, uh, negotiations, we typically demand what's called a non-disturbance agreement that protects agency from their sublease being terminated in the event that the domain or the master lander goes, you know, falls into trouble, right? Either with the lender or with the, or with the master landlord. Uh, and those are hard to negotiate. You know, a lot of landlords want to reserve their, their, you know, their control and their right to, uh, to take back the space. So couldn't the agency, the not-for-profit agency, protect their interest in the lease by making good on the financial obligations that are being foreclosed on? Yes, that may, may happen. Not a simple situation. It's not a simple transaction. Uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, benefits, a, a lot of pros and cons, but you need to consider all those things, put in a balance and see, is this a, is this a good investment uh, from a developer side or from a landowner to go into this type of arrangement? There's no doubt that all the players in the context of transitional housing are making a huge commitment to the complexity of the process to make this happen in order for people to have a place to go when they don't have a place to go. And, you know, that's, that's a, that's a fantastic mission. It really is. Uh, Bill, it, it, it runs in line with the, with the New York City's uh, policy on ending homelessness. The, the mayor's office plan on developing at least, uh, what is it, 15,000 uh, units of transitional housing, which was announced recently, or in, in, in affordable housing, I believe was 300,000 units. It's all in line with the mayor's plan of diminishing or, or helping resolve the homelessness situation in New York City. How else can you resolve that issue if not by providing transitional housing and affordable housing? 
you have a lot of support from the city and so it is a good investment opportunity for landlords and building owners because the city definitely is behind this push to end homelessness in New York. Well, you know, we're running out of time and uh, Victor is here and I'm really looking forward to speaking with him as well. Juan, Richard, that was exceptional. And I really appreciate both of you taking time this morning to be with me and talk about transitional housing. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. However, they may have some other questions for you or maybe even want to talk to you about professional services around this. Uh, Juan, could you tell us how to get in touch with you? Sure. Thank you, Bill. So uh, you could reach me at 516-316-0328 by phone, uh, by email, uh, J. Restrepo is R-E-S-T is in Tom, R-E, P is in Peter, O, at, again, RestrepoPC.com. Or you can visit my website at www.RestrepoPC.com, www.RestrepoPC.com. And Richard, how about yourself? Sure, I can be reached at um, 917 917- Eight three three four two two four, and my email is r dot y a o at b p h n dot org. That's Bronx Parent Housing Network. The website is www dot b as in boy, p as in paper, a as in health, n as in network dot org. That's www dot b p h n dot org. And then uh, both you guys actually gave your cell phone numbers, didn't you? That's correct. I just did. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. That's yeah, right. It's on direct contact. Yeah, so it's a pretty direct contact for both of you. So I appreciate that. Thanks again, Juan and Richard. Thank you, Bill, for having me. This was great. Thank you, Bill. Well, there you have it. Remember to tune in for part two of episode 14, A Remarkable Story of Personal Change. Never want to miss an episode? Then subscribe on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts for iPhone or Podcast Republic, my fave, on Android devices. You can also just listen on the web player at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And click Podcast on the menu. To share Realty Speak with others on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, just choose Share on the website player and choose your preferred social media platform. Have a question or a comment or an inquiry about buying or selling investment real estate? All my contact info is on the website as well. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.